0: Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the misfit crew at South fleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Die Living Podcast brought to you by Softly. Today we have Eliza McLean from Cane Creek Farm visiting us. I've known Eliza for a long time and uh, very happy to have her joining us today along with Brooke, uh, our in-house registered dietitian nutritionist. And if you're on the Softly program, you, you will definitely be familiar with her recipes and probably there's a chance you've chatted with her or listened to her as well. So today we're starting off uh, the first of what will probably be a three or four part series uh, talking about food production and quality. Uh, The reason we're starting off with Eliza is because Eliza runs Cane Creek Farm. She raises pigs and and sheep and and sometimes some other stuff, Uh, all of which supplies Left Bank Butchery in Sakspaha, North Carolina, just down the road from us. Uh, and full disclosure of which I am particularly interested in. Um, so welcome. Thank you for joining us, Alassa.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And, uh, just before we get like really kind of into everything, would you mind talking a little bit about kind of like your background and like what's going on at King Creek Farm?
1: Uh, sure. Um, I sort of came uh, full circle into farming, uh, started off as a teenager working with an Amish family and really fell in love with their practices and thought it was super cool and their whole lifestyle and um, their humor, their humility, everything else. Uh, But, you know, they're very much sort of a quiet subset of Americana, and I just thought it was a cool thing that I got to do. But as I pursued my uh, dreams, and I'd already been working in vet medicine. I ended up in wildlife rehab and a bunch of other um, sort of uh, wildlife ecology stuff. Like really thinking about why why is there cancer in wildlife, for example, and you know will it affect um, us, those of us higher up the food chain? What does it all mean? One thing led to another. I ended up looking into environmental toxicology got accepted to Duke University, came and got a degree, a master's in that subject, and um, and then ended up right back in the, the farming question. And I feel pretty strongly still that one of our biggest bad actors in the world, um, making it an unsafe place for wildlife and also humans, is agricultural practices. And I really want to... Um, Look at what old-timey farmers did. Why did we have certain genetics? Why did we have breeds that did better in certain areas or certain climates and all that sort of stuff and be kind of a steward of maybe some of those heritage breeds or a person that linked old farming practices with new people wanting to farm? But I really thought that I'd be the linker. And I realized in this state where we have so much agriculture going on, it was like... Uh, one way forward, and that is get big or get out. And that made me really sad. And after a while, um, I realized I kind of had to be uh, the change that I wanted to see. So I actually started my little farm, and I raise only heritage breeds, and I own the breeding stock, and I save seeds, and I grow um, some crops but mostly vegetables behind pigs. And then I raise a lot of complementary species, especially um, poultry, um, geese ducks, turkey chicken to sort of help clean up after the pigs, even though the pigs are doing a great job, all of that getting ready for vegetables and crops and just this tremendous added fertility to my land. I need to constantly be uptaking those nutrients. So, um, I just created the cycle and, um, this kind of, um, you know, <laughs> polyamorous setting of animals and all their cool relationships with each other and me. And I realized that actually works pretty well for clean water, clean air and clean soils. So I've stubbornly persisted <laughs> in this for a long time.
0: So. Well, I know it's been a, a challenging endeavor yeah. to say the least, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, what keeps you continuing to do it?
1: I don't want to see it change. I just want i I want to inspire more people without you know having to tell them all the th- mistakes that you can make and all the ways that you can lose money doing it. But it seems uh, a necessary and always evolving interesting thing to engage the public in it and actually teach a little bit about um, why why that rotational system actually works. And, 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 and I complement. you know, I have areas of the farm where people can gather and we can do sort of potluck dinners and just events, um, with the animals all around us so that I can get people there to, uh, to show them how, what a beautiful thing it can be. And they can learn about the various species or how easy it is actually to grow things, um, it just keeps you home. (laughs) There is a big wide world out there that I want to explore more. I love to go to other countries and see what other farmers do. And I don't get a lot of chance to leave. Unfortunately, that's the hard part about it for me, but I love what I do.
0: Why, why is local farming or small scale farming so important? Um, I mean, it seems like there's environmental reasons, but you know, what is the difference? I mean, I know we're obviously paying a lot more for that type of food in the grocery store. Um, I, you know, is it just the, the feeling of supporting a community or like what are the, the kind of objective reasons behind why we should be supporting this type of system?
1: Oh, I think there's so many. Um, the first one that comes to mind is carbon footprint. If people care about that at all and they can actually um, sort of get all their needs met by supporting i mean kind of back to the amish i i I found it amazing that they can go by horse and buggy in modern day america and get their amish brooms and their um fittings for their milk pumps and their food and use a storage locker and a bank and everything else but they have to position themselves where they can get to it every day and and you know, not use motorized vehicles, and they don't get Amazon packages dropped on, at their door. They're actually doing it in a community, and it's 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 a little more work, but it's pretty satisfying. I think they feel really good about it. Their farms are beautiful. Their food is healthy. Their church services are lively, and they're taking they're looking after one another. I mean, they don't have their kids in five different states in two different countries. And that's a really fun thing that we can do in the world these days. But it's also sad. You have to work really hard to get back together, whereas you could just have Sunday dinners if you were all in that community. Um, some of us still do it that way. Some of us don't. But it does turn out that most of the people that actually have the means to support the, um, the local farms are also the ones that, can educate themselves, can travel, can you know, go to farmers markets all over and sort of compare apples and oranges. Where a lot of the people that do stay in their communities are going to depend on that Dollar General down the road, and that's that's a funky thing to combat. I still I, I think about that in rural Alamance County all the time. With accessibility to high quality food. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still have food deserts, and they're I mean. I, I'm not much more expensive at the farmer's market than really what they all get at Dollar General, but they also need their cigarettes and their, you know,
0: well, whatever. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit more about the, the the carbon footprint aspect? You know, what what does that mean? I mean— And how is your farm so much different?
1: So I'm not trucking things anywhere except loading up a trailer on Saturday mornings to go to a local farmer's market. People basically have to come to me. So it does depend on me getting the word out there. It does depend on those people being willing to come to me and do more than a one-stop shopping. I'm not a Costco or a Walmart, but I have an awful lot to offer on one little farm. And if there were more farms, I think like – mine and anchoring lots and lots of communities the way that we used to do it i think that would go a long way to slow down those amazon and fedex trucks but i i get the convenience of that too and that's a market share opportunity for farmers a little bigger than mine that they can actually get their stuff into those places and people can still get it so it's it's a catch 22 i'm not really i just feel like I'm the option that people have in my community. Thankfully, it feels well-supported in the Chapel Hill area. I'm very lucky. i um, been doing it all right for a long time. But uh, there are quite a few people at the Carborough Farmer's Market that walk or bike to me and don't even drive.
0: Well, but aside from the fuel costs, I mean, just from the farm aspect itself in terms of production— you know like how does your farm differ from like a you know larger scale pig operation good
1: i good question I'm sorry, I see what you're getting at well i don't um I'm not shipping anything out, so my waste is staying on the farm and being used again um, I'm not um, dependent on people to come pick up a well gosh uh that, that whole external cost thing that we were all talking about 10 years ago with Polyface Farms and Joel Salatin's books and stuff like that, maybe even 15, where um, you know, the pigs that I might get as feeder pigs are being raised by some big operation down the road and I just buy, buy a bunch of babies at a sale or whatever – Um, so I'm going to source those pigs that are being mass produced and I'm bringing them onto my system to raise them. I don't do that. I have all the parent stock. I have the old timey genetics that were popular a hundred years ago for disease resistance, parasite resistance, um, sunlight, you know, not getting a sunburn and, and, Today, you can go get chicks and pigs from basically hatcheries from the big corporate farms, pay a lot less for them, and then raise them well. And they taste better, and they've been helpful on the farm, but they're they're just supporting this huge industry. So I try to do the opposite. I try not to support the industry, but just say I, I coexist with it, and, and I'm an option. I'm a choice. Um, I'm trying to sequester carbon and not let too much, you know, go off. I don't have ventilators in big buildings. I'm not dependent on electricity. If my lights go out, my pigs are going to survive or my chickens. And um, for the most part, I I use brooder lamps, but um, I have a generator too. I mean, I, I can sustain a natural disaster. I can sustain a long power outage and some of these big things that I inherently compete with can't do that. It'll be a total loss. Mm -hmm. And I also sustain the losses that I incur, but they're small and they don't totally affect my small margin. Right.
2: I remember we drove, I think we were going out to left bank and we drove through the farm and it was so cool because the pigs were kind of hanging out in the woods Mm -hmm. and just like doing their thing. And a lot of the times we're overwhelmed with this imagery and we think of they're in a warehouse, they're packed in, there's nowhere to go. And so it's a very different just feel as soon as you come onto your farm. And I think that that's also really cool. It seems like it has its own ecosystem versus you're just putting all these animals there and trying to make money from the meat. exactly. And it's
1: it's very intentional, which also makes it super... um, uh, it, I mean, it's difficult. It's uh, I, I have to literally control the hydrology. I have to have vegetative buffers in case I get a 10-inch rain event from a hurricane, which we get here, so that it doesn't all just wash the pig poop off my pastures down into my creek, and my creek goes into the Haw River, which I actively help keep clean, and you know, been a steward or a river keeper for a long time with a couple different rivers. So I'm I'm very conscious of how a farm can sit in a community and in a greater ecosystem and not do more damage, it contain itself, but also improve itself all the time. And so your eyes on like a hundred different balls, you have to understand how to, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot of mechanics, but I've really learned a lot of uh, like hydrology and just air movement and what the sun does year round and how to be passive solar and where to actually set up my huts and my farrowing house and things like that to make the best use of windbreaks and warm sun versus, you know, melting sun, (laughs) getting airflow in the summer around here, as well as having actually a tiny bit of winter to contend with. So I'm also not, I mean, being in North Carolina, I'm not particularly seasonal. I can produce all year round from, you know, eggs, vegetables, right. meat, and poultry.
0: <clears throat> when uh, Whenever I've had someone taste, like, pork that comes from your farm, I mean, basically, like, hands down, everyone's always like, oh, my God, this is, this is the greatest ch- tasting, you know, pork chop, sausage, like, whatever uh, I've ever had. And is that... Only because of genetics? Is it also because of how you have things set up on the farm? Like you know, how much of that is is just having good breeding stock and how much of it is in the way you're raising the pigs and and the land that they're on?
1: I think it's probably about eighty percent the latter. It really is that they get to live the life that they were designed to live and they enjoy it. They're happy, they're they're circulating hormones and you know, the way Like us, they break down proteins because they went for a happy run. (laughs) It wasn't that they were stressed and running from something. I mean, everything is kind of chill. I walk the farm every night to shut all the birds in because we have a happy population of predators around us too, which I'm happy to share the place with as long as we have some understandings. But anyway, so I walk the farm every night and I listen for happy animals, sleeping animals and it is without fail just is such a beautiful scene. That's you know, that is one thing that keeps me doing it. As much as I would like to travel a little bit more, I think I am so happy when I go to bed at night because everybody's in good shape.
0: Yeah, yeah. Brooke, how can you address kind of the difference in quality of the meat like scientifically? You know, what's what's the difference between, you know, like a, a pasture-raised you know, pork chop and a pork chop that you're just buying, you know, at the supermarket on sale.
2: A lot of the research I've looked at shows the differences between beef and there's a difference in the type of fats and the fat content found in meat. Mm -hmm. And I do think that although those are really minor things, it makes a difference over time. And I also think a part of the big picture is what are you supporting? It's not always about you and your perfect nutrition. Um, I think one of the biggest things, and I guess it's a question for you too, is when I noticed it, almost the meat looks like a steak. Mm-hmm. And when you get meat at a grocery store, that's pork, it looks white. It looks yeah. like a white meat. And so that was a really big difference that to me, just the coloration was like, wow, this is a huge difference in the quality and what we're going to find in the meat. Well yeah I mean they
1: they've they've grown to their potential um at a place like my farm, and um the fat is m- much more flavorful one it's in there because they're they're getting as much as they need. The young pigs are on something called self feeders so they get to just eat when they want to sometimes you'll hear them at three in the morning in the summer because they'd rather lay in the shade the rest of the day um but the, I think the biggest reason that we see that pale meat in the stores and it and it we it, we call it pale exudative um, meat the, um, the the proteins that are breaking down um, and the lactic acid together and you would remember this science better than me I did I have learned it but anyway um, it it basically allows it to leak back out it doesn't um, the the, the meat isn't static. I mean, isn't, yeah, isn't static. So once the animal's killed, it is still obviously going toward spoiling, but it's changing as it sits in that package. And an animal that's had a really good life that didn't die under stress at the slaughter plant, and slaughter plants are all better now. I will give that a thumbs up almost across the board. But those animals are bred to grow fast, live in an unpleasant situation most of their lives, and, you know, have a quick last day. Their whole makeup is sort of engineered as opposed to just organically becoming. And there's a, a whole breakdown process when they're sort of nervous and not enjoying themselves, not relaxed and living the life of a pig all the way through their life and in death that allows for the muscles to continue breaking down the adrenaline into lactic acid, which then leaks out and literally you'll see they all have to have pads, you know, um, Mm -hmm. those little absorbent pads in the styrofoam and we don't use those at all at the butcher shop. They just, it doesn't happen the same way. Um, and there's definitely a scientific reason for that, but they keep the color. They don't lice the red blood cells anymore. I mean, it's, uh, there's a whole thing that happens if an animal has had like a really stout, happy existence. And then again, that even on their last day died without stress and the meat holds on to itself.
0: I can't imagine that's not like significantly better for you from a a nutritional aspect. Even if the macros are the same, Mm -hmm. um, which I, I wonder if they are. I mean, that's one thing, you know, uh, uh, Charles Sidner, you know, mentioned kind of the grass-fed beef has this uh, totally different like omega-3 to mm-hmm. omega-6 ratio. Um, is it the same with pigs? Yeah, you know? and
1: especially in the longer um, aging or the uh, slower growing ones like the Osceola Island hog. Mm-hmm. And then that really looks like beef. I mean, it is dark, mm-hmm. dark, beautiful color. Um, at the end, but they're like two years old when they go to slaughter. So their, their muscles, I mean, they're like, you know, a 35 year old woman, like just at peak performance when they go to slaughter. Whereas most of the pork that we raise, we're still even in a system like mine trying to get it to market pretty quickly so they don't eat us out of house and home. So they're a little younger, a little paler, a little less defined, a little less marbling across the whole loin eye. But um, but the, the fat
0: makeup is different. Yeah,
1: especially in the in the Ozobah, we did a, a study when we first got those animals like 15 years ago, and they were really markedly different than the regular pig, especially on the right diet. Interesting.
2: So, I feel like I noticed a theme that in the American food system we try to cheat time, mm-hmm. whether it's the way we make bread or the way we raise animals, and cutting those corners. We are sacrificing, I think, the quality of food, even if it just is the omega three and sure it 's the same amount of protein. but those little micronutrients I really do think make a difference,
1: yeah, and then you know the cheese and wine and other things we we will skimp on flavor to have more, and that that whole sort of idea of slowing down and slow food, I think is really important, savoring taste and flavor and um not just having meat every single day because we process it well especially if we're like a superb athlete or something like that like still having those times where you you kind of honor it and you share it with family and you slow down a little bit i mean that's that's what our st- stuff at the mm-hmm. butchery really lends itself to i mean we had we had a holiday season like no other this year i think it's you know caught on in this community anyway yeah we have
0: yeah <laughs> no, it was the holiday season was pretty crazy at the butcher shop um in a good way yeah. but and i th- I think that there is I never really thought about this before. I't want get too off topic, but you know Ross at the butcher shop, one of the things that he's he's always talked about is he's like it's so weird to think about that you go to a restaurant with people and like everyone orders a different dish, you know there's like no other situation that you can think of where you all would sit down to eat together. And everyone would have, like, something else. To yeah. Eat, you know? Um, and that is kind of nice. There is something about, you know, literally, like, breaking bread together, mm-hmm. right? In um, that community aspect. So, well, <clears throat> I know one of the hot topics, and you even brought this up, like, when we were getting ready to sit down lately, you know, is, like, plant-based diets and, uh, you know, is methane from, from livestock production destroying the environment uh, and... You know, what, what is your, your message to people that ask, you know, like, should I go vegan? Is that healthier? Uh, can eating meat be health like a healthy alternative? Is there a way to do it that is, uh, you know, like ethically and environmentally conscious, conscionable? Is that the right word?
1: I, I mean, I think finding a producer in your community that has what you like to eat, um, you know, maybe you're an alpha gal sufferer, unfortunately, so you really need to find a good chicken farmer or you just really have discovered ancient grains. And I mean, there are those of us growing these things all over the country in every community. Um, we've really learned a lot about season extension on the vegetarian side, but I think generally speaking, a little bit of very high quality meat is, is a great thing and you'll actually eat less, um, if that is part of your diet. But I really think that there's a very big difference in the type of meat that can be purchased out there in the world. Um, I know some people feel better, uh, you know, going on a vegan diet, but I feel like this sort of push to convert more people is a bit narrow because, um, there's so many other things going into it. If you have fence row to fence row of Annie's organic wheat, and you know for your for your vegan uh, pasta or whatever, um, organic vegan pasta, you and 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 you think that you're saving animals and 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 slowing down methane. I mean, there's still a lot. In that little scenario, I mean, people like to talk about all the bunnies that get threshed by the combine when it goes through because they're all trying to live there. So you're still hurting animals by really pushing. I mean, just that's a silly example, but those things come up. And if you really, I think, I don't know, the key to this world is these days is, in my opinion, everything in moderation, including moderation. (laughs) And I feel like this is, it's gotten... A lot of attention, and it's cool, and I, you know it's educational, and people should, should watch it, should pay attention. but I don't know. I, I can't imagine just turning your life 80, 180 degrees, especially if you've got kids and you just decide as a parent that you're going to do this because you saw this whatever show. Um, I don't know. I't do know if that didn't really answer your question, no, but: I, I,
0: I mean, I think uh, in a very general sense, like there's always some kind of fad. Exactly. Whether it's in like diet, exercise, or basically anything else, it's like this is the miracle thing. Like you only have to do this, you know, do X and get rid of like all the rest of the letters in the alphabet, right? Um, and if you just do X, then like that's the best way to do it. And eventually, it gets proven that like that actually wasn't right. Right? Uh, exactly. you, know, you actually need kind of more of a balance. Um, but the other part is the. Uh, you know i I'm sure there is at some scientific level um a way to prove this, but one thing that I feel like we continue to see over and over again uh when you're talking about food making you feel better you know even recently uh George is not on this podcast, but one of the coaches here he was in town and we went to this restaurant uh like Mothers and Sons in Durham, where they make all the pasta you know fresh every day by hand um And it reminded me after he made this comment of kind of the whole, you know, way if you make bread fresh, there's like three or four ingredients uh, versus if you buy a loaf of bread in the store and there's, you know, 87 things in the bag. Right. Um, And afterwards, George made this comment. He's like, man, I can't believe, you know, usually when I eat this much carbs for dinner uh, afterwards, I'm feeling like bloated, like the carb hangover and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, I totally didn't feel that way. Uh, And In my opinion, again, it's like totally empirical. The only thing you can point to is the quality of food. And the freshness. That's the difference, right?
1: I mean, that's and that goes back to that carbon footprint thing. I mean, we got really good at figuring out how to can things in the 50s. And that was like revolutionary. Then women could actually go to work. They didn't have to be in the kitchen all day. And then we got really good at, you know, uh, enhancing shelf life and getting all these stabilizers and binders and things. I mean... I read somewhere that some of the, you know, childhood migraine situations that we see come from a flour stabilizer that's in, like, everything. I mean, every cereal, every bread that you buy on the shelf, and it's just so far down on the ingredients list. You have to be half a scientist to understand that that doesn't need to be there or shouldn't be there, and it's actually affecting, like, children's growing brains and things like that. So, again, everything in moderation, I think— I think we eat too much meat, generally speaking, and mm-hmm. we definitely mass produce it in a horrible way, which is sort of why I do what I do. But it isn't wrong to eat meat. It isn't wrong to source better meat and eat less of, you know, the cheap stuff. I mean, I stop at Wawa on the way to Philadelphia to see my parents. I'll get an Italian sandwich. Almost any other thing that I eat is going to be similar to mine. but every once in a while I just want that you know, cheap boar's head stuff. We've all got our
0: things, right? Yeah. 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 Well, so what would you say to someone, um, that is interested in, you know, eating higher quality food, uh, that, you know, believes that, Hey, maybe this is a better way to live in terms of like making my body feel better. Because I think that really you hit the nail on the head and, you know, Brooke, I'd love to hear your opinion on this as well. Like, it seems like most people that are interested in checking out a plant-based diet um, are interested for two reasons. One is the environmental aspect, uh, and two is basically the like I want my body to feel better, right? So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, how can we how can we chase that feeling with still getting like a you know a performance diet and still basically eating eating meat responsibly?
1: Well, I mean, I, I my shout out to the whole nation, and I think other countries do this better than we do, would be to find local producers and really help them to do the best job they can by being there for them on a weekly, monthly, whatever basis. I mean, even if you bought a frozen chef's box of their good quality stuff four times a year, that's huge for them to help them with their, you know, storage issues or just depending, you know, on their customers. Um, there are folks at the farmer's market that literally buy everything for the whole week and they come in with beautiful big baskets and wagons and they almost have standing orders and it's just so cool. They'll try whatever new stuff we have, but they, we can depend on them and they are depending on us. And those relationships are hugely important. And I think they, they center a lot around a community and then those roasts that everyone at the same table can eat. You know, people remind themselves that they know how to cook these things. I mean, it all just brings back food memories. I love, my favorite customers are the ones that go have the aha moment when they taste something that we produce and it reminds them of their grandparents. I mean, we're at the top of the food chain. What else is there? I mean, why not remember our grandparents? We've got a pretty crazy world out there right now.
2: Once I tasted... Pork from your farm, I was like, I can't go back. I was mm-hmm. like, Aaron, you like ruined me. Like, I can't, I can't <laughs> I'd go back. I love to hear now. that.
1: It's my favorite comment.
2: <laughs> I, I think that, you know, you highlighted this as a there's a big misconception that we need gargantuan amounts of protein to see muscle development and performance, especially in the realm that we work with athletes. And that's really not true. And a lot of the times, Um, That's kind of like one of the big little education pieces I have to do is you don't need as much protein as you think. And then I really do believe some of those proteins should be plant-based and you'll get them Mm. from things like whole grains, legumes, you know, beans, nuts, and seeds. And then that leaves a little more room in your budget for those high quality proteins. Exactly. And I do think, um, I got really mad about the game changers using the word plant-based because in my mind, everyone should be eating plant-based and a portion of your diet should be high quality animal products. I really do believe that that is, you know, this moderation is Um, like when we take a bird's eye view in moderation, these there's room for these little pieces of a diet. And if you, you know, if you believe for whatever reasons that you don't want to eat meat and doesn't make you um, feel good, like that is a thing. Some people are like, genuinely, mm-hmm. I don't right. like the way my body responds. That's fine. I also just don't want to see like fear mongering around food and meat. And I think that there certainly is a place for it in the diet, in my opinion. Well, all my
1: animals have plant-based diets too, which I mean, that's what they were designed to do. And, you know, it was the carnivores whenever, you know, how we all came off the evolutionary tree that helped also create the balance. I mean, there's still, that still needs to happen globally and that's what i try to do in a little microcosm of the globe on my farm there you know i still have the predators and they still live right next door to me and once in a while someone might slip up a dog might eat a lamb or a you know pig might eat a chicken but it's generally they're all getting their needs met like they would in a normal natural setting if they weren't confined to my farm but they're happily confined to my farm cuz they're warmer the food's always there they get to live the life of that animal, and they—they've made themselves sort of perfect in terms of nutritional value, flavor, and sort of feel good on the animal welfare standpoint for my consumers. So I feel like I'm hitting all of those.
0: Your, uh, your poultry must be eating some, you know, like insects and. Oh you know, yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Not not entirely plant based. Right, you're I mean, right. But okay. the
1: feed that I give them all is. So nothing has animal byproducts in it or anything like that. And, um, you know, pigs are masters of, of uh, composting. So a big thing and the reason pork is kind of eh, to lots of people is they used to get fed all the slop, all the bones, all the everything because they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they probably had OK flavor, maybe not quite as, I think, sweet or defined or perfect or whatever is, I feel like the pork I produce and people that, you know, raise them like I do. But, um, you know, we've taken that away, uh, by and large because of rats and trigonosis and everything else. And, um, it's, it's, I mean, they're, it's, it's a pretty, they're, they're satisfied. You can tell, you can tell just by the walks, my nightly walks, but also the way they act. And that's why they don't eat a chicken. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that you mentioned when you talked about, uh, you know, like these fields of organic wheat, you know, for Annie's uh, and the whole idea of, well, you know, you're still supporting animal, animal killing by buying (laughs) that kind of stuff because the the combines coming in. Um, I mean, the other thing that I've heard uh, farmers say and I've read, you know, farmers say is that. When they're running farms that have, you know, multiple animals on them and, uh, you know, they're raising crops as well, that they're really surprised at how much wildlife also comes to the farm. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that it's not just about, you know, what you're killing, but not, what you're not supporting, you know, exactly. the life of as
1: well. Exactly. <clears throat> the, the monocultures out there are really for the birds. I mean... <laughs> um not even literally uh it's it's i mean mother nature doesn't like it it's always trying to adjust against it and that's what's so cool and that's i you know i think that's what keeps me doing what i do is to just once you get this sort of cycle going you realize wow that's that's like the woodlot next door and i'm actually creating a wildlife corridor down here by the creek with my vegetative buffer so that I'm, I'm trying to retain nutrients, but I'm also giving all this back to, you know, migratory waterfowl or, uh, you know, songbirds or whatever. And it's Charles Sidner out of Braeburn. God, and he did 18 acres of that. And it was so beautiful. And he just created a whole new habitat by taking care of his land and his animals on his land. Yeah, More, more came in.
0: What, what have you seen happen, especially in your, par- your farm?
1: Um, I mean, just a a, a huge amount of birds and I don't even put bird feeders out. They actually can, they can come right down to the pig feed. I, I for a long time had bird feeders and they really weren't going that fast. I have natural suet. So I do put that up. Um, but the predators are right around the outside, but they seem in balance too. I mean, the foxes are healthy and, um, I, they, I have a ton of rabbits, like an insane amount of rabbits. And so when they start to disappear and I feel like they're suddenly a bigger coyote or fox load, I have to really, you know, uh, get my chickens trained and get them all in at night because they're going to be next. But, you know, right now I'm in a really happy balance. I have a really low predator pressure for the animals that I produce for the shop, but, um, a lot of wildlife. And so it, it feels like it's in really good balance right now, even with all the rain we've had this last year. The grasses were incredible this year. We got more hay off the land next door. I mean, it's 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 good for the moment. <laughs> yeah.
2: It seems like you're building such a rich environment. And so it almost seems like it's not fair, the argument of I shouldn't eat meat because it's bad for the environment. Because in my mind, you know, like we mentioned, if you're forcing this huge plot of land to just be this one crop... You're actually taking a ton from the soil. You're probably fighting Mother Nature You're not and creating necessarily. a bigger problem. You're
1: having to put something back that's probably in more of a chemical form. Mm-hmm. And those animals that w- would keep the balance, and we see it all the time in places like Yellowstone with the removal of wolves and then the have to reintroduce the wolves because everything left, all the way down to the... like. The marshes, I mean, just because one predator wasn't there anymore. And so to sort of enhance Mother Nature letting her do her thing is a really incredible learning experience. And it's a great thing to show the public and my customers. So I really – that's why I, That's why I stick around and keep doing what I'm doing. But it really makes a difference. I mean, I think those animals, their hoof action, their fertility from their dung, I, I mean – Everything about how they sort of keep the balance of the growing other stuff, it it all, it matters. And Mm -hmm. so to just say, I'm going to boycott meat because it doesn't, it's not in keeping, we don't need it as humans. That may be true, but one, it's never going to fully change. And if too many people change it in certain areas, it's really going to upset the environmental, um, you know situation there. I think so. That's where that's where I think that all meat is not the same, mass produced in barns. Depending on mm-hmm. out, you know, how are we going to feed the world? Is this big question? Well, I think if more people did what I did in small you know plots and really got there, I mean, they would just they would learn so much. They would understand uh, so much about how it works.
2: I have a feeling we're going to look back and. I don't know why in our culture we want to like demonize like eggs or meat or like we want to find this one thing, but I think we're going to look back and realize it was really the commercialization of farming and food processing. Mm -hmm. That's created a lot of issues.
1: Well, that's a, I think it's a money thing. I mean, we figured out how to do it, you know, how to, how to preserve, how to save. I mean, more than just hanging meat in the smokehouse or whatever, we got cans, we got shrink wrap, we got stabilizers and, then you could really just make a ton of it for a little bit of money and make so much that your margins you everyone's still going to win but the environment won't i mean it's costly somewhere there's a cost
0: no yeah. i think the when i hear people talk about not eating meat for you know environmental reasons um or even for you know the i, I won't support like the animal cruelty industry of death The whole idea of that, you know, really, I feel like is you're just pushing the problem off on someone else. You know, it's like the idea of like a a no-kill animal shelter. You know, like I dropped my dog off this no-kill shelter. So, like, thumbs up. It's all good, you know. Um, When the reality is that's just like that much less space for someone else. You know, someone else has to be ultimately the one to deal with the problem. Um, You're just removing yourself from it an extra step in enable, you know, in enabling yourself to feel like more righteous about what's happening. Right. But, uh, yeah, I think most of our, you know, our, our followers, I would say, are probably on, on the, the kind of trying to, the train of trying to eat better, putting, you know, higher quality food into their bodies. Um, and so, you know, I think. With that, the the one concern that a lot of people have, rightfully, is, you know, budget. Like how do mm-hmm. I how do I do this? You know, it's great, sounds awesome, but can I afford to do it? Um, and so going back to, you know, the farmers market side, for people out there that, you know, don't live in Saxpaha or, you know, the triangle of North Carolina, you know, how do I go about finding a good farmers market what you know what are the questions I need to ask to find a you know a farmer that's raising high quality meat um, you know and, and what's the what's the relationship that I need to develop in order to be able to buy food uh, you know at a reasonable price <clears throat>
1: There are parts of that that still feel a bit broken to me. I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question. I think farmers, generally speaking, have less and less access to land, so they're going farther and farther into rural America, um, which only means that they have to travel farther and farther back to sell it. So th- that's a big question I have right now. I I, I want to know how I mean, it seems like small communities – just west of us in Sakspaha is Snow Camp, and Snow Camp's really got a lot of farmers in it and a lot of young farmers moving in and taking over that land um, so that they still can get to Greensboro or Chapel Hill to sell their goods, but they're finally being discovered by their locals. So I think the, I, I think asking who's doing what in your area if you live out in the middle of nowhere and if you don't, who's kind of right outside there. And it's hard for us to network as farmers. And we have wonderful uh, organizations here in North Carolina and they're coming, they're growing everywhere. farmers markets are still, you know, tens of thousands strong at this point. And when ours started in um, the seventies in Carver, I think there was something like 3000 nationwide. And now it's just tremendously
0: different. When I go to the farmer's market, like, how can I tell who's got good product? You know, how do I know that I'm buying product from someone that is doing things the right way?
1: Uh, the line <laughs> at their stand and really just honestly the look of it. It's so competitive. It's so competitive to get in. It's so competitive when you're there. They are the best of the best, especially at Carborough. But you, you, they're, they're having this I, I, all the farmer, I mean, wherever, wherever I travel, I go to the farmer's market and I really like to look at the politics and the hierarchy that I can kind of glean is there. And they really, they're watching each other and they're, and they're trying not to price gouge each other or price set. They're, you know, they're communicating and, and honestly making themselves and each other better, um, learning the old ways, coming up with good new ways to do something a little more efficiently, um, I think, I mean, some of the more traditional farmers are going to have the more traditional stuff, the simpler lettuce, the normal crookneck uh, yellow squash and zucchini, and then some of those younger ones are trying some really cool new things. And so a bit of both and and just, uh, you know, seeing who delivers week in and week out it takes a little time. Um,
2: I have a question for you. What's your opinion on the USDA organic food labeling?
1: Um, I think really good people are behind that. Um, The National Organic Standards Board is an incredible group of people, and it's a five-year volunteer term when you get on it, and they are literally advising everybody in Washington and each other on what can be allowed, what can't be allowed. I mean, the bigger producers are inherently trying to cheat for lack of a better word the system like instead of somebody like me who thinks what can what more can i do for my animals what more can i do to make these plants grow even better but naturally without throwing you know fertilizer at them in any way um besides what i already have um the industry generally asks the opposite how can we get away with not putting this in it how can we do a little bit less and still get the job done like Mm -hmm. you were saying about time so I think, um, there's some things that have been, and, and every region is different. So we're talking about this huge nation that that board serves and, and, you know, helps determine legislation over, um, generally speaking, I think it's a very good system as long as it doesn't get taken out, uh, by current thoughts, um, it seems
2: like, I think I was talking to Doc about it, but. The
1: problem is, get I was about to say, is the international stuff, getting it oh, okay. in here, calling it organic one place and letting it just come straight into our stores is real different apples and oranges. And there's not enough, I mean, I, we, I don't think we could ever possibly get enough personnel to change, you know, a mango or an avocado that's coming from a different country south of us once it gets here they called it organic, we sort of have to, so that, that would be more local sourcing. I mean, Mm -hmm. buy things that are in season, eat what's, you know, what's, what's growing right now.
2: Well, I remembered, um, I remember doc saying something about how there's some weird rules around animals. And sometimes even if they can't say they have the USDA organic label they might still have a really high quality product and I think that's why it's important like Aaron mentioned is having the conversation of talking to farmers and like what questions should I ask like an animal producer I guess
1: and that I mean and that takes some investigating on the part of the consumer which can be a lot because just like we all know if you have any ailment you look on the internet and it can be you're going to die tomorrow too don't worry about it so you got to kind of sift through it but With animal organic stuff, a lot of it has to do with organic feeds, which can be very difficult to uh, buy or um, produce efficiently um, without costing too much in the South, especially. We have such intense weed pressure and fungal pressure and everything else. Um, Organic grains are awesome, but they work they grow the best in like the Midwest or the higher altitudes of Colorado or whatever. I mean, they can be done, but it would be prohibitively expensive for me to feed organic, um, feed in my opinion for my customers and where I've sort of landed with my, um, you know, consuming public and, and, and dedicated followers. Uh, but, I also, I source locally. I don't, my soybeans, for example, are whole and roasted instead of extruded and expelled. And I don't even know what that process means, but turned into that powder with a bunch of stabilizers in it, which goes in every kind of animal feed in the world and could be just GMO to the hilt. So I'm trying to champion local producers, non-GMO grains, but I don't go as far as organic. And therefore, since my Pigs are not organic. I can't really call my gardens organic, but I've never used synthetic pesticide or fertilizer in my whole life. It's mm-hmm. all from my animals, so you know.
2: So in that, that way, I feel like it's kind of deceiving because mm-hmm. you really do go above and beyond organic, like the word, but you don't meet the check boxes necessarily of the labeling.
1: Right. So that's a decision for the consumer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd if I didn't have me, I would be looking for organic, you know. I go to the organic section of every single market has them now, a food line, for example, and I'd rather buy their organic grapes than their non-organic grapes. I don't produce grapes, so that, you know, yeah.
0: but. I feel like local kind of trumps organic, yeah. you know, and then kind of conventional underneath that
1: and part so. of part of that's because of the travel time so things need to be shelf stable so they can be considered organic but they're probably tweaking some little thing that's probably costing flavor or nutritional value to get it to us when we want it from so far away as opposed to eating what sorry knocking eating seasonally
0: awesome well thank you very much for joining us you're welcome Brooke. thanks for having if, me if you have any other questions or
2: No, I just love the conversation. It was really great listening and learning more. I really appreciate you coming.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Eliza. Thanks for joining us.